Turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4. Uh, last week looking at the letter in Revelation 2 to the church at Ephesus, uh, considering the the danger, the caution for us as a church of, um, well, just the warning of the potential of dead doctrine being all head with no heart, being uh, intellectual without spiritual, forsaking devotion in the name of doctrine. And so really pushing in from that text in Revelation 2 last week on uh, it's not just what we know about Christ, but it's how we love Christ. And that admonition from Christ to that church, the one thing that he had against them was that they had left their love that they had at first. They had abandoned that love. They had forsaken that love. And so the resounding question that was left with us after our time in the Word last week was, have we also left that love we had at first? Or do we have the potential to do so? And certainly a, a warning, a caution for for us as a church, a, a church body that rightly values doctrine and places a high, high premium, high value on right doctrine and right theology. And so then the follow-up question is, well, can we just rely on devotion? Can we just rely on emotion, our feeling, our experience? And so the concern is that instead of dead doctrine, we become disconnected with our devotion. We become unhinged. We become ungrounded from the scriptures. We fall Pray, therefore, after that to the winds of false doctrine that come along. And that brings us to 1 Timothy 4. And Paul wrote this letter of instruction to Timothy, who was pastoring the same church that the letter of Revelation 2 was written to. And so 30 years prior to what we read last week in Revelation 2, we have the the encouragement, the admonition, the instruction that comes from the older Apostle Paul to his younger disciple who is... Uh, a fellow laborer for Christ and and leading here in this church at Ephesus. And Paul's it's interesting that that when we consider our text for today in all of the letters, first and second Timothy, but our text today in chapter four, that that the church does seem to take Paul's admonition to heart. Paul speaks directly to Timothy. Timothy then in turn gives this doctrine, this teaching to the church. And apparently they took it to heart so much so that they took it to heart at the expense of devotion. And they left the love that they had at first. And so we want to we want to rewind the calendar about 30 years to the context where Timothy is serving there at Ephesus and ask the question today, does doctrine matter? Does doctrine matter? Well, yes, a clear and emphatic yes, not qualified. Yes, not yes. And yes, but yes, doctrine does absolutely matter. In fact, first Timothy ad- addresses doctrine. Over and over and over again. Paul's writing to this, to this younger brother who's leading this church and, and is giving him not, he's not teaching him doctrine so much as he is telling him, hold fast to right doctrine. Keep right doctrine. And so he's giving him admonition to, to hold fast to that which is right. It, it, First Timothy is not like Romans in the sense of where we, where we develop a, a, somewhat of a systematic theology from it. First Timothy is, no, you know right doctrine. Now stick with it. Stick with this, stick with this doctrine. And so this letter is written by the Apostle Paul to Timothy, probably in his 30s. He's, he's not a teenager in spite of what verse 12 may lead you to believe. In his 30s, pastor to Ephesus. And it's interesting as we read, as we read this. So Paul is writing this to a pastor. 
And so pastors and elders are supposed to serve as examples to the church. And so as one of your pastors, like I should be able to say, hey, follow me as I follow Christ. First Corinthians 11, 1. Right. We should be able to model our lives after others. You want to know what a Christian looks like? Find one and model your life after that person. That's one of the roles of the pastor, elder, teacher, shepherd. And so in this instruction that Paul is giving to this to this pastor here in the church at Ephesus, we find very clear instruction about how we are to hold to doctrine. Does doctrine matter? Yes. And so the question that that I want to I want to bring to us on a more individual basis, even is does doctrine matter to you? Does doctrine matter to you? Are you just like, ah, you know, I'm just not really all that concerned with all that, all that high thinking, deep level doctrine kind of business. Does doctrine matter to you? And I want to, well, I pray that as our time in the word will lead us this morning, that we will maybe even place a higher value on doctrine and thereby grow in our devotion toward the Lord Jesus. So we'll read all of the chapter here, first Timothy chapter four, and then dig into the text. First Timothy chapter four and verse one. Now, the spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits, spirits and teaching of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth for everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. So the first section here gives us an insight into what some of this false doctrine that was creeping into the church was about. Verse 6, if you put these things before the brothers. So remember, the Apostle Paul is writing this to Timothy, who he essentially appointed to be the pastor over this church here in Ephesus. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set... Set the believers an example in speech and conduct and love and faith and purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close, close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we confess these are your words given to us as your church to instruct us and to teach us. Lord, so as I preach, help me to preach rightly. And Lord, as a church, as we hear your word, help us to receive your word rightly. Convict us of sin. Lord, convince us yet again of the value of right doctrine. And Lord, may may our hold to good, right and true doctrine empower us in devotion. Lord, may we have full heads and full hearts for Christ. We pray it in his name. Amen. So does doctrine matter? Well, in the first section, the, the text breaks up into, into, into three sections of instruction. 
And so in the, in the first section, verses 1 through 5, Paul kind of identifies the false teaching. He doesn't go into to great detail because Timothy obviously would have known what Paul was speaking of. But the one thing that we learn for us here some 2,000 years later is that first we must beware, beware the danger of false doctrine. Like we, we must beware. Like we have to be on guard. Beware the, fa- the danger of false doctrine. So he comes in, in verse in verse 1 of, of chapter 4. And we read, now, the Spirit expressly says, now, like, pay attention. Pay attention. Doctrine is a big deal. He says, the Spirit expressly says that that in latter times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. And so, when he says they're latter times, he's not referring to, like, decades later. Because if you understand what's going on here in the context, he's referring to right then and now. And in their day, he's writing to Timothy saying, hey, the spirit says in latter times, this is going to start happening. And by the way, there are those among you who who are saying, don't get married and stay away from these foods. And so the the danger was there for them in that current day. And the danger is true for us as well. And this word depart in verse one, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. The word depart literally means to apostatize, to to totally forsake the faith. You had you had an appearance of following after Christ, of being redeemed, but you totally forsook the faith. And why are these people forsaking the faith? They are forsaking the faith because of this false teaching that he's coming against. And so this is not this is not some trickery. This is not some deception that that people have fallen prey to. This is an act of departure that's going on. People are walking away. And so we see here an an indication that the the Ephesians, much like we saw last week, they weren't being tricked into some some heresy, but they're actually rebelling against God. And then in verse 2, we see that Satan uses people to to lead others astray through insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. They're given away to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons. And so the sincerity of liars, the hypocritical liars, they're, they're people who say one thing, but they, but they do another. Their consciences are seared. What a, what an, what a disturbing phrase here. Their consciences are seared, seared. It's which the word seared, we get our word cauterized from. And so like it's, it's a wound is cauterized. And so it, it, there's no pain. There's no feeling anymore. There's no feeling. There's no guilt. And so this is a serious issue for the church. If, you, if you're there in chapter four, just look over to, to chapter six and look at verse three. Paul says there, chapter six, verse three, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he's puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. So he's telling Timothy, watch out for the wrong people. And all false doctrine basically has two points, two two premises for all false doctrine. You either have the false doctrine that adds to the work of Jesus, this would, an example of this would be legalism. It's Jesus plus. Or you have the false doctrine that takes away from the work of Jesus. It's Jesus light. It's yes, but maybe you don't need the repentance part. Maybe you don't need the obedience part. And not legalism there, but but liberalism. And so similar to to our conversation in the word last week. Similar to the church at Ephesus, our bent at Redeemer Church is more toward legalism than liberalism. Like we're, we're we'll we'll sniff out false doctrine. It seems pretty quickly. It just the 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 condition of our church and the way the Lord has wired us. 
But maybe we are more prone, just like the church at Ephesus, toward toward legalism. And so in this context, this is what was going on. The false teachers in the church at Ephesus were were pointing to false doctrine in two areas, meals and marriage. They're saying, no, you can't eat those things. You you have to stay, you have to require abstinence from certain foods that God created to be received, but also you should forbid marriage. Don't don't get married. And they're taking two good things that God established food and marriage, food and family, and saying you have to stay away from both of those and thereby prove that you belong to God. And in essence saying you are a better Christian, a higher Christian, a more spiritual Christian. And so Paul's argument here, he doesn't really address the false teaching all that uh, detailed, but he says you can't forbid what God has already declared as being good. Going back to going back to the account of, of Genesis chapter 1, everything that God's created is good. So who are you to say that Consuming food is bad. And so the problem here in verse 3 is that the people, they don't know the truth. They forbid marriage. They require absence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. The problem is a, a lack of knowledge and a lack of adherence to the truth. And so Paul says there, there are three responses to this false, te- false teaching that you're supposed to be aware of. One, if you believe and know the truth, you know that you're to be thankful for food and thankful for marriage. That's verse three. Verse four, everything that God created is good. And so receive it with thanksgiving. You attribute everything that you receive from the Lord and you thank the Lord. And then verse five, verse five, for it is made holy by the word of God and by prayer. You recognize the origin of these gifts, food and family. Both of these are find their origination in God. And so the point here is that abstaining from good things given by God and instituted by God with the goal of earning favor from God actually gains disapproval from God. So you're you're abstaining from food, you're abstaining from marriage as if you're earning favor toward God. But in fact, in doing so, you're earning the disapproval of God. And so why should the church at Ephesus reject this particular false teaching? Well, it's a salvation by self kind of plan. It's a, you trust in what you do. You trust in your acts of obedience for your salvation. It is legalism at its finest. And so we have to ask ourselves the question, are we trusting in what we do for approval before God? Or are we trusting in what has been done for us by Christ, for our approval by God? You see, we aren't saved by rule keeping. That's Paul's point here. We aren't saved by just keeping the rules. We're saved by grace. And because we are saved by grace, then God plants within us a desire to keep his commandments. But to invert the order is to put ourselves at the center of salvation. And so Paul's issue here is that we should be thankful, we should be joyful, and yes, we should even be happy in Christ. And so beware the danger of false doctrine. Moving into the second point that Paul presents to Timothy here in Ephesus is that we are also to be disciplined in right doctrine. We're to be disciplined in right doctrine. Paul uses the false teaching to point Timothy to the discipline of right doctrine and godliness. And so he comes in verse 6 and he says, if you put these things before the brothers, if you put these things before the brothers, well, what are these things? Well, it's a, it's a phrase he uses seven times in First Timothy to refer to the apostolic teaching. Timothy knew the doctrine. Timothy knew the teaching. He had spent time with, been t- with Paul. He, has, he had been taught by Paul. And so when Paul refers to these things, Timothy would have said, yes, I need to teach what is right. I need to hold to what is right. I need to uphold what is true. And it's important for us to understand here that the best way for us to refute false teaching 
is for us to pursue right teaching. The best way for us to refute false teaching is for us to pursue right teaching. The primary way that we fight false doctrine is by teaching right doctrine. And so if we're always going around pointing out wrong doctrine, we'll simply become known only for what we are against. We'll we'll enter into this this exercise of doctrinal whack-a-mole. When the the next wind of false doctrine comes up, we, we try to pull out our hammer and whack it, and then what do you know, another pops up. And if we're not careful, we spend all of our time focusing on that which is false at the expense of that which is right, and that which is true, and that which is correct. And so we should, yes, we should teach doctrine so well that we as a church, we should teach doctrine so well, we should hold to doctrine so tightly that when we encounter false doctrine, we recognize it. And it's not because we've been taught about this particular false doctrine, possibly, but because we have been taught what is true doctrine, what is right doctrine. And while we may not be able to delineate why this is wrong, we know that there is something wrong about this because it takes away from the sufficiency of Christ, the authority of the word, the the glory of God in various ways. And so from time to time, we'll certainly... We'll certainly have to point out as a church a threatening doctrine, a doctrine that that does threaten us as a church. And Paul does this in verses one through five. But but we won't we won't have some false doctrine of the week moment in our weekly gatherings. No, we how do how do we best recognize that which is counterfeit? We know as best we can that which is authentic. And so Paul uses this this false teaching to simply point Timothy back to the fact, no, you focus on that which is right. And so the key verse of this whole passage is is verse 7. So verse 6, he says, if you put these things before the brothers, you'll be a good servant of Jesus Christ, being trained in the words of the faith and the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. So Paul Paul doesn't say you need to go around and just crush all of this false doctrine. He says, train yourself. And the best way, again, to counter this false teaching is to grow in the teaching that is right. And so Paul is telling Timothy, be more concerned about you, your growth in Christ, than you are about this false teaching. And so if our goal in pursuing doctrine is not becoming more like Jesus, you know what? We're missing the point. If our goal in pursuing doctrine is not becoming more like Jesus, we're missing the point. Also, in the same vein, if our goal in pursuing and deepening our devotion is not becoming more like Jesus, we're missing the point. You see, this this reality of doctrine and devotion that we've been talking about a couple weeks, we, we said last week, it's not a pendulum swing. It's not, we have to find some center ground. We have to We have to bring all this into balance. But it's a harmony between the two, a meshing together of doctrine and devotion in our lives. And as I pursue right doctrine, as I pursue right doctrine, what am I doing? I'm learning more about Christ. I'm deepening my knowledge and my understanding of Christ, who he is and what he's done. I'm I'm growing in my knowledge of God and and how he works in this world. And so as I, I pursue right doctrine, what should it do for me? It should make my heart swell. It should cause my devotion to deepen. And so when when my devotion deepens, what should that cause me to do? It should cause me want to want to dig in more and to dig in deeper and to go further. And so this, there's, there's a continuum here of doctrine and devotion for us as Christians and as a church. We want to pursue right doctrine. Does doctrine matter? Absolutely. Absolutely. Do we call out false doctrine? Sure. Definitely. Why? Because we want to be more like Jesus. 
And if our doctrine doesn't lead us to devotion, then we're missing the point. But if our devotion doesn't cause us to dive deeper into doctrine, we're missing the point of devotion as well. And so there are two parts in this instruction in, in, in verse 7. He says, have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. One, he tells Timothy, look, just not every false doctrine is worth your time. When he says, have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. He's saying not every false doctrine is worth your time. And then he says in verse seven, rather train yourself for godliness. So not every false doctrine is worth your time. But also second admonition to Timothy is spend more time on growing in your walk with Christ. Be diligent in growing in your walk with Christ. Train yourself for godliness. So how, what are the paths to this righteous, to this, to this godliness of verse seven? One, we have to have what he presents as a right diet. A right diet. Going back to going back to verse six, he says, if you if you put these things before the brothers, you'll be a good servant of Jesus Christ, being trained in the words of faith. It's also translated nourish there. It's a different word from training in verse seven. It carries the idea of growing deeper in a particular area. And as Christians, we are to continue to grow in our nourishment of the things of God. And so this expression indicates that that the effects of the teaching are not just for our heads, but they're also for our hearts. We should expand the knowledge that's in our heads, but that should cause our the love that's within our hearts to grow as well. And so he tells him, avoid false doctrines and avoid time wasters and feed yourself the right diet. In verse 7, he says, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Don't waste your time on these things. Two descriptions that he uses here. One is irreverent. It suggests something that is re- religiously bankrupt. It has nothing to do with God. And then silly. It's translated silly in the ESV. It describes an idea that's frivolous. It's not really worth your serious attention. As one writer put it, some false teaching is best ignored rather than discussed. And so Paul's words don't mean that we should be unaware of claims that are contrary to the cause of Christ. In fact, Christians, we ought to understand clearly the trends of thought and the things that are influencing us from culture and society. Yes. But it must be an understanding that that we arrive at through a careful examination of the true doctrine, right doctrine. So how do we how do we develop this right diet that he points Timothy to in verses six and seven? How do we how do we consume those things that are right? Well, it's right before us. And whatever if you have a print form or electronic form, it's right before you. The steady diet of the Christian is the word of God. We are to spend time in the word. We are to read the word. We are not to spend all of our time just reading words about the word. We should be diligent and disciplined in reading the word. That's what Peter wrote in in 1 Peter 2. Like newborn infants long for pure spiritual milk. That by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So let me ask you, church, what is your opinion of the word? What is your feeling toward the word? One diagnostic, well, how do I know? One diagnostic question is, how much time have you spent in the word in the past seven days? If you say, well, I picked it up this morning after I set it down last week. Well, you just said, you just demonstrated by your activity this week how you feel about this word and the value that you place on this word. You can't train yourself for godliness. With a closed Bible. We can't do it. We can't develop right doctrine in our hearts and in our minds with a closed Bible. And we can't develop right doctrine in our hearts and in our minds with a closed Bible with the other voices that are just merely speaking 
about the Bible. No, we like newborn infants, according to Simon Peter's words, we are to long for the pure spiritual milk of the word. We want to be the blessed man of Psalm 1 who delights in the law of the Lord and on his law he meditates day and night. So there's a right diet for us. There's a right diet for us. If we're going to train ourselves in godliness, there has to be a regular rhythm of word, Bible, scripture intake in our lives. So there's a right diet, but there's also a right discipline that comes here. He says, avoid those things, but rather train yourself for godliness. And, and the picture here is that of exercise. It's that of exercise. You go to verse 8, and Paul uses that very, that very example. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds the promise for the present life and also for the life to come. He says, train yourself to, train yourself in godliness in contemporary culture in first century. The word that's translated here, train, was used of, of, gymnastics exercises and it it carries the idea of to control oneself through discipline to to discipline oneself to to keep your to keep yourself disciplined with the goal of having and lead and leading a godly life it literally means to make make yourself obey make yourself obey to to command your heart to obey train yourself and so it conjures up this this picture of work of effort of discipline of sweat, which means training ourselves in godliness is in no way passive. Training ourselves in godliness is in no way passive. Growing in, a, growing in godliness does not just happen. A closed Bible will never result in godliness. A non-existent prayer life will never result in godliness. And so we work we work hard at growing in godliness. And the key here is motivation, motivation. You say, well, Richard, you, you kind of sound a little legalistic there. Well, I'm glad you brought it up because it's my next point in the sermon. There's a difference between legalism and discipline. There's a difference between legalism and discipline. Discipline is motivated by love and focused on God. Discipline is motivated by love and focused on God. Legalism is motivated by works and focused on me. Legalism motivated by works and focused on me. So every Christian should be known for discipline. We should all be disciplined as we work in training ourselves toward godliness. But we should not in any way be known for legalism. And the root of the difference between the two is motivation. Motivation, discipline. What causes me to open the word and spend time in the word? What causes me to wake up early, to stay up late, to turn off the TV, to to shut the other book, to to put down the phone? What causes me to intentionally take time away to spend time in the word and pray and spend time with the father who loves me? My motivation. My motivation. Because I know he loves me and I love him. And so I'm disciplined in that. What causes me to be motivated by works and to become a legalist with regard to how I approach Bible intake and praying and attending worship? It's love for myself or love for other people. If your motivation is just just so you can tell someone else that you read your Bible every day, well, your motivation's wrong. You're doing the right activity. You're doing the right activity. But your motivation is wrong. 
And so we must work hard at growing in godliness. We must spend time in the word. The word must spend time in us. We must memorize the word. We must listen to the word, meditate on the word, feast upon the word. And so we value right teaching and right preaching. We value right doctrine. And once a week isn't enough. It's not like you come in each week just to get your booster shot to make it to the next Sunday. Once a week isn't enough. You don't train once a week. Discipline doesn't happen one time every seven days. You train daily. If someone's going to, for whatever reason, decide to run a marathon, they're going to train daily. They're not going to wake up one day a week and say, well, I'm just going to go run my 26.2 to, 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 to train myself to run this marathon. No. No, you're going to work every day. Every There's going to be discipline behind that training. And so let me ask you, what's your daily routine? What do you do in the course of a a given day? And in the activities of that given day, would you say that you're training yourself for godliness? Is there discipline to your life? And so to this end, Paul says in in verse 10, to this end, we toil and strive. uh, Other words that conjure up discipline. The word strive here in verse 10 carries the idea of, of, a, of a strenuous work, a strenuous toil that just drains you for, from all the energy that you have. Godliness requires effort. And the picture is that of an, of an athlete just exerting every ounce of energy that he has in the race in order to reach the goal and achieve victory. And the present tense, for, present tense is used in both of those verbs in verse 10. We toil and strive, which carries that, which teaches us this is a continual thing. This isn't just a once in a lifetime thing or a once in a week thing. We, we do this all the time. And behind our disciplining ourselves and consuming the right things, behind our diet toward godliness, God is the one who is commanding all of these things. And so we must believe on Christ. He is, if you look back at chapter two, he is the one mediator between God and man. And then once we believe on Christ, we work hard to grow in Christ. At root, the issue is this question. Simply, do you want to become more like Jesus? Do you want to become more like Jesus? Do we want to become more like Jesus? If so, then we are to be disciplined in right doctrine. So number one, beware the danger of false doctrine. Number two, be disciplined in right doctrine. Truth three from our text, be diligent in true doctrine. Be diligent in true doctrine. So we come, we come to, we come to verse 11. Command and teach these things. Which, I mean, it sounds like a fun verse. Man, let's get after it. That's, that's where we can kind of stand up on the hillside and just call shots out. Right? Command and teach these things. But we can't do verse 11 until we do verse 7. Command and teach these things. Because, verse 7, we're training ourselves for godliness. We don't go around just commanding and teaching these things unless we are actually training ourselves for godliness. We work on our lives personally and we work on our lives privately. Discipline is this inward devotion that actually does have outward evidence. And so without this inward activity, discipline is nothing more than legalism, as we mentioned earlier. But with the inward devotion, with inward devotion rightly set on Christ, we experience life. We walk in joy. We have peace and hope and confidence. And so he says, same phrase again, command and teach these things. What are we to do? What are we to teach at Redeemer Church? What is it that we should declare from this stage and in our small groups and at coffee shops and in homes together? 
right doctrine. True doctrine. True doctrine that, that glorifies the Lord Jesus and exalts the Lord Jesus. And then, in the context of declaring that which is right, Paul issues Timothy four specific challenges. Four specific challenges. I think we'll identify with these challenges. In verse 12, he challenges Timothy to be an example. Be an example. Look at verse 12. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Let no one despise you for your youth. This is not a good verse at all for a youth ministry in a local church. In my day, it kind of took my youth day. It kind of took on a militant idea. Like, no, you can't despise me because I'm young. Well, that doesn't really work for the teenagers because Timothy was about 30 ish. So what's going on here? Well, in the context, Timothy was considered a younger man in the church culture that he was in that valued age and wisdom that came with age. But Timothy was called by God to go into this church and to lead this church. And so Paul says, no, let no one despise you for your youth. Don't worry about what people are saying about your age. Here's what you do. You set the believers an example in speech and conduct and love and faith and impurity. And the first two, first two ways that Timothy is to set an example are outwardly expressed, and the last three are inwardly. First, speech. But set an example for the believers in, in speech. How we talk and what we talk about reflects what we believe. How we talk and what we talk about reflects what we believe. We commonly think it's just what we talk about. Right? What we talk about reflects what we believe. It's not just what we talk about, though. It's how we talk. It's not just the text of our conversation, but it's also the tone of our conversation. Jesus put it this way. What comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. So do you confirm your confession with the way that you speak or do you actually nullify your confession with the way that you speak? Be an example for the believers in speech and the way that you talk and what you talk about, but also your conduct. Be an example for the believers in speech, in conduct. How we live actually does matter. And it matters greatly. And so that's why we, that's why we encourage one another toward holiness. But Paul says, be an example for the believers in your conduct. Spiritual, spiritual maturity is not just about knowing the right things, but also believing the right things and then behaving the right way. Behavior does matter. Does your behavior, does your pattern of living reflect, say, the fruit of the Spirit? Does the way that you behave throughout the course of a given wait, given week reflect love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control? Be an example for the believers in your conduct. So Paul, in, in addressing the outward, he hits the two major areas of all of our lives, right? What we say and what we do. Be an example for the believers in your speech. What you say and how you say it but also be, a, be an example for the believers in your conduct. How you live actually matters. But then also, there's an inward example. Be an example for the believers in love and faith and impurity. So first, love. Question, does your heart toward God and toward others grow and deepen? Does your love toward God and toward others grow and deepen? Or has your love grown cold? Are you in danger of abandoning the love that you had at first, like we considered last week? 
Well, then the admonition that came to the church at Ephesus in Revelation 2 is your admonition. Repent, remember the heights from where you have fallen, and return. Do the works you did at first. So just repent today of a love that's grown cold. What about your faith? What about your faith? Do you believe God? Do you take him at his word? Would you consider yourself to be an example for other believers in love and in faith? And then the third one that he presents for the inward reality, purity. Are you actually growing in personal holiness? Are you more like Jesus today than you were? Purity. These three are inward traits, but it's interesting about these inward traits, love, faith, and purity. You can't, you almost can't qualify these things in, in real time, in real life, but you just know. You know someone who loves Jesus like crazy. You know someone whose faith is solid on Christ. You know someone who is not perfect, but is not content not being perfect. Is pursuing holiness. And so the first challenge is for Timothy to be an example. The second challenge is for Timothy to explore and expound the scriptures. Verse 13. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. And so here is the pastor's primary duty. And in, in the scriptures alone, do we as pastors have any authority? And so we come together each week around the scriptures. So let me ask us, church, do we, do we actually enjoy this time? Spending time in the word. And look, I get it. Whether it's me or somebody else preaching, I, I, I'm, I'm the primary preacher, so I'll take the hits. We're not going to crush every sermon. Right. There are going to be some days when I'm going to walk away and be like, I'm not real sure what I said. But if I've declared the word, if we've just read scripture and said comments about scripture, then we trust that scripture is the authority. We explore and we expound the scriptures. We come together each week around the scriptures. Do we enjoy this time? Is our delight really Psalm one in the law of the Lord? Or are we just sitting there thinking like, man, this one's going to be a doozy. Like we normally do like five or six verses, he's running off 16. We're going to be here a while. What is our attitude toward the scriptures? And so the public reading of the scriptures should be infused by the private reading of the scriptures. Maybe sometimes our attitude toward coming together for the public exhortation from the scripture is a result of our private experience with the scriptures. And that certainly relates to me just as much as it does anyone else in the room. So he tells Timothy, be an example. He tells Timothy, explore and expound the scriptures. And then he tells Timothy, exercise your gift. Exercise your gift. The next marching order for Timothy. Do not neglect, verse 14, do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. We don't know exactly what Paul is talking about. We don't have a record of any group laying their hands on him. Maybe similar to an Acts 13 kind of deal with... Uh, with Paul and Barnabas when they were sent out. But we do know that according to, to, to Paul's words here to Timothy, that God gave Timothy the gift of teaching. And so Timothy is supposed to use this gift. And just by way of extension and application, do you know that if you're saved by the Lord Jesus, you are gifted by the Lord Jesus? And you are gifted in such a way that you are to serve the church. You are to bring glory to the Lord Jesus by serving the church. First Peter 4.10, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. So how do we grow in godliness? We exercise our gifts. You say, well, I, I just don't think I have a gift. Well, the only way that you don't have a gift is you're not saved. 
So if you don't have a gift, then you're not saved. Repent, believe on the Lord Jesus. And then we'll figure out what your gifting is. Right? The only way that you don't have a gift is if you're not saved. So figure out how you enjoy serving. How you're geared towards serving. And honoring the Lord Jesus. What are you good at serving? You're curious? Just ask some people around you. Hey, what do you guys think I'm good at? And practice these things, Paul says. Get to work. So that all may see your progress. So the question, the self-reflective question here is, are other people able to observe growth in my life? Can an observer look at my life and see a pattern of growth so that all people can see your progress? And so he tells them, be an example. He tells them, explore and expound the scriptures, exercise your gift. And then the last admonition to Timothy is to examine your life and teaching, examine your life and teaching. Verse 16, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Examine your life and teaching. A healthy rhythm for us as Christians and pastors and a church is examination and evaluation. We should take the scriptures as a mirror before us. And see if we are mirroring what we read in the scriptures. So we examine our lives. That's what Paul tells Timothy. Examine your life, behavior, action. What does your life look like? Examine your life, but also examine your teaching. What is it that you really believe? And so am I behaving in a way that does not honor Christ? And also am I believing in a way that does not honor Christ? So back to the question we began with, does doctrine matter? Yes, what we believe and how we behave gives evidence that we actually belong to the Lord Jesus. It's the way he ends verse 16. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourselves, yourself and your hearers. It's not that interpreting scripture with scripture here, it's not that Timothy's endurance would merit salvation. But the fact that Timothy endured would give evidence to the to the truth that he actually was saved. And it's going to produce it. It's going to produce in Timothy's life and in our lives. Holiness and doctrinal integrity and give evidence toward salvation. And so, church, does doctrine matter? Yes. Yes. Should we value doctrine? Yes. What should the result of doctrine be? Love for Christ. Love for one another. If my doctrine doesn't deepen my love for Jesus, well, I'm pursuing doctrine for my sake. Not for the sake of Christ. And so as we think through these things, doctrine and devotion, may our may our heads grow as we learn of Christ and may our hearts grow as we love Christ. And then may our hands get to work. May our lives prove evidence of what we believe and how we behave. Be there in first Timothy four, flip over to chapter one. I want to read a couple of verses in the way that the Paul begins this letter. And then we'll pray together and sing. So notice. Notice how Paul begins this. This this letter to Timothy, his true child in the faith. Verse two. Look at verse three, first Timothy one, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. So Timothy's charge is to. Hold to doctrine nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculation rather than stewardship from God that is by faith. So don't 
Don't give yourself to foolish things. And then verse five, the aim of our charge is, you see it there? Love. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So two questions for us to reflect upon as we sing. One, do you care about doctrine? You're like, well, I mean, I didn't think I really needed to. You do. You do. So let's get after it. Let's get after it. Let's work hard at training ourselves in godliness. Do you care about doctrine? A follow-up, a sub-question of the first question is, why do you care about doctrine? Is it just so that you can prove everybody wrong, prove yourself right, or is it because you actually want to know Christ? And then the second question is, how is your devotion toward the Lord? How is your heart toward the Lord? When's the last time that you were broken over sin in your life? When's the last time you were wrecked by the truth of the word? When's the last time you you truly experienced grace from spending time in the scriptures? Knowing that God himself was speaking to you through his written word. How's your devotion toward the Lord? And in, in a room like this filled with people like us, we could have a myriad of responses. So we don't want to formulate what we do now. We trust the written word is before us. The Holy Spirit is within us, communicating to us the living word, the Lord Jesus. And we can repent rightly. We can ask God for help. We can confess to the Lord that we don't care about certain things or about certain peoples. And we can train ourselves in godliness. Knowing that Christ is the end goal. Rather, train yourself for godliness. Let's pray and then we'll sing. Father in heaven. Lord, thank you for this word. Lord, the what a gift of grace it is for us that they haven't just left us to figure things out on our own. And Lord, as, as we sing together now, Lord, if those areas... Um, in which we need to repent. Father, give us grace to repent. Make us miserable until we repent. Thank you for the conviction that comes from the reading and the teaching of your word and the worship and the believing community and the Holy Spirit. (laughs) Father, may we as a church body be diligent and may we truly toil and strive in following after you Lord, with our head and our heart and then we trust you lord with how that turns into obedience in the work of our hands thank you father we pray it in jesus good name amen